deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors. And I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors. And you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Followup Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial. For a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Protect yourself. Make sure you don't have leverage that if things go wrong and you time it badly, they take your investment. Best ever listeners, I'm excited to introduce you to our newest host, that we're bringing on to the team. His name is Slocum Reed, along with myself and Ash. Slocum will be providing value to every interview he does. I've known Slocum for years, and I've watched his portfolio continue to grow. He currently owns and operates 65 units, including converting three units into an office building. So he's an owner-operator. He's coming from certainly a different perspective than I have. I know he's going to bring his expertise and cut through the fluff and get the best real estate investing advice ever for you. So welcome, Slocum Reed. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed and I'm here with Phil Block. Phil is joining us from Los Angeles. He has a multifamily background, but his company LBX Investments is primarily syndicating shopping centers right now, and they are fully vertically integrated with over $284 million in assets under management. Phil, can you start us off with a little more about your background and tell us more about what you're currently focused on? Sure. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I founded the company with Rob Levy, my partner, he and I have worked together for a really long time. We had a large company in New York called Centerline Capital, which is a public company. He was a CFO and then CEO, and I ran corporate finance after doing some investment banking in New York prior to that. And we're value guys. So when we sold the company and various kind of iterations, we were looking for something for our own account and looking for value. And multifamily was expensive, felt expensive. To us, because this was six years ago, so we were wrong, <laughs> as it continues to appreciate, but really saw an opportunity in the retail space. We both have retail backgrounds in kind of prior lives, so we started buying shopping centers largely in the southeast and now all around the country. 
Yeah. You know, the seven year real estate cycle has been ending for like the last five years, exactly. right? Exactly. Exactly. Everybody thought apartments were overpriced back in 2015, 2016. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And here we are. So your value guys, that's one of those terms I use it. So many people, they do the value player, they do value add. What does that mean for you guys specifically? In general, what it means is we are looking for yield that we feel is mispriced, where the risk is mispriced. And that typically means buying when other people are selling, particularly institutions, and selling maybe when other people are buying. And so it's still true today, but we started this, as I said, we had a prior partnership six years ago. We started LBX four years ago. And when you bid on a multifamily deal, as you know, how many guys are you competing against, right? It's 40 guys. Right. Right? It's hard to say. I really found value when I beat 40 guys. The deal, you may end up making money and doing well, but that is a pretty competitive landscape. We're bidding against four or five folks typically, and we're buying larger institutional assets and trying to hit an in-place yield with some upside where we think the market is not understanding what the real risks are there. So anyway, that's our focus. So you're looking for mispriced yield or mispriced deals, which means you have to get out of multifamily because multifamily is so picked over. Even if something is mispriced, like you said, there are 39 other people who are going to bid on it. So that has moved you into shopping centers and Phil, feel free to correct me where I'm wrong. What you've found in shopping centers is an asset class where you could become an expert if you weren't already one. And you're finding more deals where there's potential for value that other people are missing. You have more of an analytical advantage, we could say, in shopping centers over all of the competition that you're facing to buy multifamilies. Is that fair? I think that's right. I think how you have to think about how we think about things, there's macro and there's micro, right? From a macro standpoint, especially four years ago, but still true today, there's a narrative in the media that retail's dying, everything's e-commerce, Amazon's going to take everybody's lunch. And what we said is that doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of the retail today. Now, our class C malls in the middle of America where population's declining, a good investment, probably not, right? And we're not at all interested in that. We're not going into enclosed malls with a Sears and a JCPenney and a Dillard's or whoever your anchors might be, where you have 500,000 square feet of vacancy. What we thought is grocer anchored centers, Target anchored centers, Walmart anchored centers in the best locations and the best markets from a macro standpoint, that felt and feels great and sustainable. And especially we were focused on just fundamentally great real estate. So growth markets in the Southeast where you saw population and demo growth that felt fantastic. And just in terms of we're buying on Maine and Maine, right? If you think about retail, you're normally Maine and Maine. If you're buying office, you might be in some office park way out off the road. If that goes away, how are you replacing that? Same with industrial. Retail, you're right out on the road. You have 50,000 cars going by you every day, especially when you buy the best stuff. So that's macro. We felt this makes a lot of sense. And we both were and are experts in this sector. And it's hard, right? There, There aren't that many people that understand it. Everybody understands apartments. It's why there's so much capital that floods it. It's not that hard to understand or to underwrite. Basically, what's your rental growth going to be? 
and what's your vacancy and you can underwrite multifamily. With retail, we're looking at the credit of the tenants. We're looking at the long-term trends in that sub-market. We're thinking about how much does it cost to replace those tenants because we have large TI dollars and leasing commissions. And we've become, we think, probably better than anybody in the market at underwriting that risk, which is why we've beaten our underwriting on every deal we've ever done. So macro, thinking about this, and then micro, what's the best specific asset? So what's the grocer that's doing the best in that sub-market? What are the rents on tenant by tenant? How much is it going to cost me to replace? Maybe there's a 20,000 square foot box tenant, pick one, Bed Bath & Beyond, but is their rent well below market? Can I improve that over time? Are they paying too much? Really understanding the nuances. Speaking of one of those nuances, Phil, do you guys do single tenant properties? Do you have a preference there for single tenant or multi-tenant? Does it matter to you? Yeah, we don't do single tenant. We often sell single tenant. So one of the strategies that we employ is we will buy an entire center and it's like buying wholesale and selling retail. So you buy a whole center and maybe it has a Publix grocery store and a nail salon and a pizza shop, et cetera. And then you have a Chick-fil-A or a McDonald's out on the road. So if we can buy the whole center at a seven cap or an eight cap, and then sell off those out parcels at, as you know, three cap, four cap, five cap. Yeah. We can really reduce our bases and enhance our yield. Awesome. So a couple other questions for you. I have an apartments background and I'm conversational in shopping center investing through my associations and through my work with this podcast. I want to ask you a couple of quick questions about the way that you analyze properties. And then I want to dive into the numbers and hopefully get into the specifics of one of your deals. First, Phil, I want to ask, this is a term that we hear often, what counts to you as main and main? Sure. So there are typically arteries running out from whatever major city you're talking about. We are not buying urban core retail or real estate. But kind of first and second ring where you see kind of the suburban population growth. And we're talking about the major intersections. And there's normally kind of just a few in those submarkets. And you're typically thinking 30, 40, 50,000 car per day type vehicle counts on both roads. I'm imagining, Phil, you get off of the interstate at an exit. You end up on a road that also has a state route number. And then you hit a red light where another road also has a state route number. That probably sounds like the kind of main and main you're looking for, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm sure all your listeners are familiar with where the targets are and the Walmarts, et cetera, Home Depot. Yeah, absolutely. I'm using the apartment terminology here, but tell us more about how you underwrite for the cost of vacancy. Sure. So you're talking about the cost to replace the tenants. Typically, what we found is the best retail is pretty well occupied. There are very few, I wish I could tell you and your listeners that we're buying 80% or 70% occupied shopping centers that you can come in and immediately lease that space up. It's mostly going the other direction when there's vacancy, not 100%. We have maybe one or two examples of deals we've bought where there was kind of obvious vacancy too that I can think of off the top of my head. But in general, that's the type of very clear value add that you do end up with a lot of competition. 
What's more typical is the better shopping centers. And if you drive just in your neighborhood, my guess is the better shopping centers you go to are full. Maybe there's a small shop space or one of the anchors left, but it was immediately replaced, that kind of stuff. But the key to underwriting it is what's your current cost? So what are they paying? What's your current rent? And use an anchor space, 20,000 square foot. The guy like a TJ Maxx, Marshalls, they're probably paying somewhere around $10 a foot a year. Maybe it's 12, maybe it's eight, it's just depending on the market and how much the TI, the tenant improvement dollars was. So if they're going to go out, if they're leaving, or maybe you already have that vacancy, you're going to have to spend tenant improvement dollars to get somebody else in. You might have to white box the space it's called. So bring it to very plain vanilla space. Do you have an average cost per foot metric for your white boxing? You can't exactly. To white box, we do. The TI dollars can vary considerably. And some tenants are on an as-is basis. So you underwrite a range of outcomes, thinking about who do you want and what does that look like. The more dollars you have to spend, obviously, you can buy up rents, but that can cost you in the long term. So the typical TI, it's expensive, like splitting a box, it could cost you 70 bucks a foot, $80 a foot, something like that. What does the HVAC look like? Because that's always one of your major costs. What does the roof look like? Do you have to redo the roof for your new tenant? So that's why the variables within retail are pretty dramatic from a, hey, we're going to do an as-is deal to you need to give me $100 a foot for a medical use and white box and give you new HVAC. Like doing a new grocery store probably costs you a hundred dollars a foot, something like that, to build out. Yeah, dramatic variables to your point though, they create the opportunity to find value. How much it costs to turn a two-bedroom apartment with one bathroom is fairly uniform in a market, much more uniform than the kind of stuff that you're talking about, especially if you're subdividing a space. Or you have to put new air handlers in because now it used to be one tenant and now you're going to have two in that same space. So that makes a lot of sense. Do you have a rule of thumb for anticipating how long a space will remain empty after a tenant moves out? Yeah, you probably started 12 months for kind of a shop type vacancy, just like the 1,000, 2,000 square foot from an underwriting convention. And then in an extremely hot market, you may shrink that. Just the time it takes to go out and lease it, sign a new lease, get somebody in, get the space renovated for them and have maybe some free rent period before they start somewhere, call it a year. And we typically beat that. Gotcha. So you estimate conservatively, conservatively, meaning a longer time, you're estimating a 12 month vacancy when someone moves out of a 2000 square foot space. The honest answer is we go space by space for every new deal and it varies. But if you're asking for a very general rule, that's pretty safe. The larger spaces that anchor 5,000 to 50,000 square foot spaces Certainly more uniquely done tenant by tenant, but always longer than a year. Those leases take much longer and the timeline to get somebody in takes much longer. Phil, just a couple more general questions and then I want to head in a different direction. Let's say you're going to have an anchor tenant vacate. And let's say you're going to have a 1,000, 2,000 square foot tenant vacate. In those two scenarios, how often are you courting new tenants for the space 
before the space is actually vacated. Like come see this actual operating restaurant in the space where you're considering putting your own restaurant as opposed to get the tenant out, white box it, show it as a fresh, new, clean space to a prospective tenant. Where's the balance there? Are you trying to get people in beforehand or are you waiting? Always before, especially in commercial leases. We have sometimes a year notice, sometimes nine months. It's never like tomorrow they're out, right? That's just not how it works or even 30 days. So we have a long lead time and our head of leasing is just fantastic. He's out of Charlotte and he's been doing this for 30 years and he's as good as it gets in the industry. And then we work with the best local leasing teams, depending on where our shopping centers are and he's managing them. And we're having calls weekly between them and they're showing that space and pushing it long in advance of a vacancy. Gotcha. Let's turn the conversation for our best ever listeners. Phil, have you gone full cycle on a shopping center? We have refinanced. We haven't sold anything on purpose. We're at the place. So we started, if you think about our timeline, we started LBX four years ago, almost exactly, and started buying shortly after that. Our first shopping center, we bought all the equities out. We have another two deals now out of our 11. So kind of three out of the 11, I think that all the equity is out or with a refi happening now, it'll be out. All the equity is out, meaning that with a cash out refinance, you bought out your limited partners. They stay in the deal, but meaning that as a limited partner, as a limited investor, you have all of your money back and you're still getting a pretty significant distribution quarterly. We'll get back to the show with a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. What's holding you back from getting into apartment building deals? Is it knowledge, fear, inability to take action, lack of support? If it's any of these things, then I suggest you consider Deal Maker Mentoring with Michael Blanc. Michael's program is the most effective program to help you syndicate your first apartment building deal. During Deal Maker Mentoring, you'll work directly with one of Michael's experienced mentors who have successfully replaced their income with apartment buildings. They've already done what you want to do, which is become financially free. So in addition to providing their own syndication experience, They've been trained in Michael's unique deal maker blueprint designed to help you do your first deal and become financially free just like them in the next one to three years. To find out more, text the word Joe to 66866. I know Michael's going to get you to where you'd like to be. Again, text the word Joe to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind and let's get you started with your own syndication business. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. If you could for us, Phil, pick one of those deals. I want to go through it from start to finish in the next few minutes here. Treat me like one of your LPs and tell me a couple of things. 
keeping in mind that I could put my money in apartments any day of the week, that there are plenty of opportunities at eight pref, 15% IRR, underwritten on the five-year hold, get my money back in three to seven years. That's out there. And I'm considering you instead of that. One of these deals has obviously already worked because you've already, in reality, you've gotten the LPs all their money back and they're still in the deal and still receiving returns. Start with how you pitched this to me as your limited partner, and then move me through the steps of executing on your business plan until you got to that cash out refi. What did that look like? Sure. I'll use the first deal we bought, which was a deal called Alifia Commons, which you can see on our website is in Orlando. So it's right by UCF, University of Central Florida, which is, I think, either the largest or second largest school in the country now by total student population. And as we talked about before, Maine and Maine. So there's an artery running from downtown Orlando East, which is where UCF is. And once you run east, then there's another one mean road and it's Alifaya Trail and Colonial Drive. So Colonial Drive runs east out of downtown and then Alifaya Trail runs north-south and it's on the corner of this main intersection and it couldn't be kind of more dense and growing faster. It's just absolutely tremendous real estate. So it was a shopping center we bought at a nine cap going in. For today, it's pretty small for us, but I call it $20 million, just under $20 million. Day one, nine cap. Day one, nine cap. Is that fully occupied? I don't have it in front of you. We call it 95% occupied, right around 95 95% occupied. Okay, so that's the first number that jumps out on an apartment investor, Phil. Ain't nobody buying nothing at a nine cap right now. Well, you're you not buying retail at a nine cap anymore, but this- Sure, well, yeah. yeah. To your point, when was this? This was three and a half years ago. Pre-COVID, gotcha. So what does that cap rate look like? For what's left in the center, it's probably a seven, but call it right around a seven cap. So 95-ish percent occupancy, you're opening at a seven cap. You bought it at a nine three years ago. Yeah. Today, it would be a seven cap. How much of a value play did you have when you bought this three years ago at a nine cap? Significant. So... One of the things, as we talked about, you were asking me about single tenant, do we ever buy single tenant? I said, we sell it. So here there was a Taco Bell, a thing called Amscot, which is like a check cashing place, but right out on the corner paying a huge rent. And they had a 10% rent bump coming with a 10-year option that they had to exercise within six months of our buying it or a year of our buying it. And we knew they were going to do that, or we felt strongly that they would. And there was a local Chinese restaurant out on this main road that made no sense to us, really. And again, kind of a single parcel. And an Academy Sports was one of our anchors. It was on the end and could easily have been parcel. If you're not familiar with Academy Sports, it's like Dick's Sporting Goods. So what we felt was we were buying this wholesale. And frankly, a number of the rents in place were significantly below market. And the shop, while it's 95% occupied, a large chunk of that is because Academy Sports is they were 50 something thousand square feet. So we did have a decent amount of shop space. And the truth is the kind of secret sauce, that's where you make your rent. That's where you make your money because shop space goes for three times the cost of your box space. And a lot of the times the institutions are great, the institutions that we buy from. So we were buying from Regency Centers, which was a large public read. 
they're great at leasing your big national anchors. They are not very good at your local shop space because they do what you did, which is say 95% occupy. That's great. It checks their report and nobody's really paying attention. If I lease that last 6,000 square feet at $35, $40 a foot, that's four times what you're leasing your anchor space at. And it's adding significant value. You're capping that. So what we did is we said we can parcel all of these individual single tenants and sell them and reduce our bases. So as I said, we bought it in nine cap. We sold the Amscot. First, we let it bump by 10%. And then we sure. sold it on the new income for a six and a half cap. We sold the Taco Bell for, at the time, I believe, a five cap. They were four and a half or a five cap. It was a low market rent. We kicked out the Chinese restaurant because he was struggling. And we brought in Jollibee. Are you familiar with Jollibee? I'm not. It's like the McDonald's of the Philippines. They're absolutely okay. massive. And we just did that deal and sold it at a four and a half cap. And then we went to Academy. We created a tax parcel for the giant Academy box. And we sold that at an eight cap, which was a good deal for the buyer, to be honest. But because we're of our basis, we now have all of our money out just from selling all of those. And then we effectively own the rest of the shopping center for free. We're pretty close to that. How much of the shopping center is left? There's a gym through shop space, call it 55,000 square feet, 60,000 square feet, something like that. And how long did it take you to create and sell off all the out parcels? It was a timing issue for just waiting on the last, the Jollibee, because we had to kick out the Chinese restaurant and deal with that. But it was all done within two and a half years. Wow. That's pretty impressive. So back we haven't to... refinanced yet. And your investors already have all their money back. Gotcha. So what kind of a return were you proposing to investors when you were first acquiring this? And what does it look like now? I think we had modeled and said, again, I don't have it in front of me, so you got to give me a little leeway, but call it a course, 16 or a 17 net return IRR over a five-year hold. And we're certainly well into the 20s. We'll see what ultimately how long you hold, et cetera. But we have a lot of very, very happy investors in that deal. Yeah, I believe it. Fast forward to 2022. Are you putting together any deals right now? Always. Yeah, we have one in Atlanta that we are signing the contract on today or first thing Monday morning, we're finally in agreement on. And we have a, a large Publix deal in Florida that we are in interviewing for on Tuesday that we're, so that's like best and final submitted. We're one of a few groups being interviewed and we'll see. Gotcha. Last question with the deals that you're looking at right now, how do the returns that you're offering to limited partners compare to the typical B-class value-add apartment, 8-pref, 15% IRR over five years? To be honest, the biggest difference is our underwriting's correct and believable, <laughs> if we're being <laughs> honest. Most of our returns are driven by cash flow, not by the idea that we're going to get 5% annual rent growth and sell it at a forecast in a rising interest rate inflationary environment. So I feel much better about our projected returns because it's not speculative. We're paying typically double digit cash flow out of the gate or it's an eight or a nine. And there are pretty simple things like selling out parcels, a little bit of lease up that generates the added yield that gets us to a high team. 
It's why, listen, we continue to look at multi and I understand why people like it because I love the multifamily business, but buying things at two caps, three caps, saying we're going to have five or 10% rental growth forever. And that's how I'm getting to a 15 or a 16 is dicey, right? Maybe that continues. I've been wrong for the last few years, but that is to me much less achievable than buying a great shopping center, paying an eight or a nine or a 10 day one and just doing little bits around the edges to achieve your enhanced returns. Phil, let me put what I think you just said in my own words, tell me if I'm wrong. The biggest difference between the underwriting you're doing and the underwriting most multifamily syndicators are doing is that the projected growth of the apartment market is predicated upon the current position in the market cycle perpetuating itself for at least a few more years. All the rent growth we're seeing the cap rates remaining low, probably not going to compress anymore. I don't know that anyone is projecting a compressed cap rate five years from now, but the returns that we're seeing underwritten in the apartment market are predicated upon the ability to do the things we've been able to do for the past few years due to COVID and due to where we are in the market cycle. With shopping center deals like yours, the value play is already in the paper. The rent growth potential is effectively step-ups that may already be in place or specific to the micro factors of the property and that individual market, specific to the factors affecting that property and that market, the value that you're finding and seeing the spaces are underutilized. I think that's right. And you also have opportunities for additional exit strategies and value plays in that if you find properties without parcels that could individually be sold at a lower cap rate based on effectively changing the asset class to something single tenant with a lease that's corporate backed, you're taking something that you can buy at a higher cap and sell off a smaller portion of it at a lower cap. Yeah, that's right. Everything we do is about protecting our downside first. And what I struggle with, what we struggle with in the multifamily space to compare that, since that's what you're asking about it, is most of those guys today, as you know, Fannie and Freddie are not getting to the leverage that most of those syndicators need to get their deals done today. So they're getting debt fund type borrowing, which is SOFR based. So if you run it on a forward SOFR curve, you buy something at a three cap, is that kind of what you're seeing right on a value add multifamily today. So you buy kind of a tertiary, I don't know, three and a half, somewhere around there. And you finance SOFR-based bridge debt that's going to cost 5%, right? As SOFR 300 is today 3% and it's going to be 5% in six months if you use the forward curve. You need a lot of rental growth to cover you. And if things go slightly the wrong direction for you, cap rates widen, which I think they have to, not a ton, but they probably have to a bit because you have to have some positive leverage. Your equity is actually underwater, not just, hey, I'm not going to hit a 15. You're going to lose your principal. And that's what scares me. It's worked well. If you put on low leverage, long-term financing on multi and hold long-term, you're fine. But a lot of the debt fund, hey, I'm going to get you this return in a three to five-year hold is much riskier to me I think, objectively than what we're doing. Phil, I'm based in Cincinnati. No one here is buying at a three cap. Our multifamily cap rates are higher than that because they have to be. Our deals are smaller. But to your point, 
the opening cap rates on deals like yours. I have friends who are operating in that space and getting day one cap rates that you just don't see in multifamily. So to your point, there's more cash flow in that right now, even in Cincinnati. Phil, are you ready for our best ever lightning round? Let's do it. Awesome. What is the best ever book you've recently read? Just read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which was a great book. Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Nice. What is your best ever way to give back? Well, giving great investment opportunities to the retail community. (laughs) What is the best ever skill you've developed as a commercial real estate investor? That's a good question. I think, honestly, capital structure and protecting our downside. Structuring your deals to protect your downside. is Absolutely. Yeah. Not over leveraging, using the right kind of debt relationship type borrowing. We cannot lose principal. I will not lose investors a dollar. That's our number one goal. Phil, what is your best ever advice? For real estate investing? Yes. I think it goes back to what I just said. The market has been tremendous for, as we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, for what, how long has this cycle been going? It's easy to forget things can go the other way. And I came out, we own the largest special servicer. C3 was part of Centerline. And you can see when things go wrong, I don't think we're going to have a GFC again. But what happens when you're over levered and you don't have the type of relationship with your lender that enables you to have the time to weather that cycle? So protect yourself. Make sure you don't have leverage that if things go wrong and you time it badly, they take your investment. That's the number one thing. Protect yourself. Bill, thank you. Where can our best ever listeners get in touch with you? Our website is lbxinvestments.com and easy to sign up as an investor on that. I think my cell phone is probably on the site and emails phil at lbxinvestments.com. We'd love to hear from you. Great. Well, best ever listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you've gotten value from this episode, please do subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend who you think can gain value from this conversation we've had with Phil Block. Thank you and have a best ever day.